Welcome back to part two of our conversation with Sanford Johnson about all things Mississippi and Mississippi politics. We continue our conversation from last week about the future that Sanford sees for the state. We also discuss the future of the national political landscape in the 2020 Democratic primary field. If you haven't listened to last week, it might be best to go back and check out last week's episode. Otherwise, you might be slightly confused about a few things in our conversation. But if you want to continue on and be confused, that's certainly your choice. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. So you are pretty active on Twitter about Mississippi, not only educational reform politics, um, but politics in general in Mississippi. What do you want to see as the future for Mississippi in terms of education, in terms of its political leadership? What do you envision? Because you've now committed a lot of time to being here. Yeah, this is home. This is home. And I I don't think I'm leaving. (laughs) So uh, I'm good. I'm a Mississippian. So um, what I want to see, and this is a like big picture, nonpartisan answer. I want to see people engaged. I want to see people who pay attention to what elected officials are doing, whether they're Democrats or whether they're Republicans. I want to see people holding folks accountable. And I want elected officials to recognize that there's a political consequence to the decisions that you make. And if you make decisions that are not in the best interest of people, then the consequence is that you are going to be voted out. Um, I think about that a lot when it comes down to education, because I feel that there are certain decisions that are made. There are certain decisions that are not made because elected officials feel like there's no political consequence. So um, one of the issues that's been around for a while has been around school funding. Um, We have a school funding formula that has been underfunded most of the time. So it was created back when we were juniors in high school. And it was officially fully implemented when we were seniors. You know, I took that victory lap at Auburn. But uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was implemented in 2002. I think it was fully funded twice. Oh, when we so were seniors then, in college. Yeah, yeah, seniors in college. Okay, yeah, okay. it took a while. It took so a while. So when we were yeah. juniors in high school, this is such age insider baseball right now. <laughs> when you and I were juniors in high school, they created a formula. Right. And then didn't fully implement it until like six or seven I think years it took later. about five years to, wow. to implement okay. it. Yes, yeah. yeah. But that's when it was fully in place. And I think they fully funded it twice. Um, Twice since 2002? Yeah, yeah. It would it would, it would, would be underfunded. They would try to fully fund it during an election year to be able to say, hey, we did it. And, and then it just doesn't get fully funded. Now, there are some issues with that. Um, so, so for one thing, we're not giving districts the money that, they prom- that we promised them. Um, another part of it is that we know a lot more about how much it costs to educate kids than we did back in 1997. Like when you think about the cell phones that were available in 1997 as opposed to the cell phones that were available in 2002 versus the cell phones that we have today. Like, just like our technology has evolved, our knowledge about 
funding education has evolved too. And I think when that formula was created, the focus was on adequacy and making sure that there was a baseline amount of money that every single kid got. And we have this formula that addressed that. Um, we now know that equity is one of the biggest issues and that low-income students need more. English language learners need more. High school kids need more. Gifted students need more. And we need to have a funding formula that reflects that. We don't have a funding formula that reflects the needs for equity within our educational system. We also have a funding formula that has a loophole that allows high wealth districts to keep more state money than they really deserve, which prevents us from being able to have that more equitable formula. So we were pushing along for years, like there was all this all this discussion around, we need to f fully fund our fun funding formula. And there were legislators who really didn't make progress on it. And the reason they, that they didn't is because there was no consequence for underfunding the formula. However, there was a, a perceived consequence for raising revenue. So we were stuck. We finally made some progress. There was a group called EdBuild that examined our law, made recommendations for how to change it, um, got us to doing a equitable funding formula. They were going to close that loophole, and which was going to bring in like an extra $100 million into our funding formula. And that's where everything sort of broke down. Um, I think that there were some folks who are advocates for fully funding education that realized, well, this is going to cost my wealthy district then I'm going to back away from this. So I'm, I'm nervous that we may have missed our moment to really make some progress. And I think this is going to be a very interesting year. Um, this is the first statewide election since 2015 when we had a ballot initiative around uh, fully funding education. And there were some things that the legislature did to ensure that that, that that ballot initiative would not pass. So now these folks are up for re-election again, and I'm just curious to see what's going to happen. Um, there are a lot of people who have talked about, you know, do we want to strike? Do we want to, you know, protest and go to the Capitol? I feel like this is the opportunity. You know, who are you going to vote for in November? Like, who are the candidates that you're going to support? What are candidates going to say? Like, are people going to be held accountable? And this is just one example. Like, you can look at bridges. You can look at what's happening in um, in central Mississippi around the ice raids and the economic system that we created that created those conditions in the first place. There are a lot of discussions that we need to have in the state. And I would love to see people that are engaged as these conversations are taking place. And we start asking tough questions to elected officials and start holding people accountable. In terms of national politics, where do you see Mississippi's place mm. in national politics? I mean, this is a red state. It is. It is a, um, we have the largest percentage of African-American uh, residents and voters of any other state in the country. And I think because of that, that has uh, led to an interesting racial divide where I think white voters in Mississippi tend to be more entrenched into the Republican Party because everything goes through the, the filter of race here in the state of Mississippi. I'm hoping that's something that will change as younger generations become older, old enough to vote, and they become involved in politics. But that has been the dynamic for the last couple of years. I don't think that there's any uh, concern about Trump not winning the 
I think our six electoral votes in 2020, but I'm hoping that enough people can get involved that there may be some competitive races for governor this year, or I think there's going to be a Senate race next year that could be competitive. So we'll see. I'm, I'm hoping that the groundwork is being laid right now. And I've seen some exciting young people who are getting involved in electoral politics and you know, we're, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. If, Every single person could vote in Mississippi. Would it still be an unquestioned red state? If every single person who could vote actually did vote, I think that we would see some changes. I think that we would, I think we'd be a lot more purple. I don't know if we'd be blue, but I think we'd be a lot more purple. I think we would see a legislature that's a little bit more balanced. I think that we may see a few more, um, I think we'd see a few more you know, Democrats at the state level. Uh, We may be able to get another uh, member of Congress. Redistricting is is a big part of that too. Um, Whenever redistricting takes place, I feel like there's an effort to push in as many black voters into the second congressional district as possible. And I guess the benefit is that it guarantees that Mississippi will have one black member of Congress, one Democrat member of Congress. But the downside of that is that in a lot of ways, it guarantees that Mississippi will only have one like Democrat who's in uh, Congress. So that's why this election is so important, because the people who are going to be sent to the legislature this time around, they're the ones who are going to get to decide what do our congressional districts look like? What do our House districts and Senate districts look like? So it is going to be very, very important. And this time around, we're not going to be able to count on the federal government to be able to come in and say these lines are these lines are illegal you know we're gonna have to redraw you know we're pretty much gonna be on our own so that's why these elections are so critically important so i would love to see people really get involved really get engaged I would like to get some of your thoughts on some recent Mississippi issues that I think illuminate not only kind of a present political situation, but the long history of Mississippi politics. So a few weeks ago, there was the, that the University of Mississippi expelled or disciplined the students who took pictures with rifles at the Emmett Till Memorial marker. It's not really a memorial. It's more of a it's historical marker. Yeah. And then just last week, the ice raids in Jackson. How do you make sense of these? These are also national issues. But what do those what do these issues and news stories mean in Mississippi to you right now? So so when um, there was the incident with the uh, student shooting up the Emmett Till uh, marker, it reminded me of the uh, blackface incidents that we had at Auburn back in uh, 2000. Was that 2001? That was Halloween of 2001. It was, yes. And I think about the response then, and I think about what the response would be like now. And I think that um, there was an effort to talk big when the camera's there. But when the camera leaves, like, okay, we're just going to 
allow you to come back on campus. We're not going to really discipline you too har harshly and we'll just move on. Um, I think I think the big issue there is we're not being deliberate enough with making sure that we're building inclusive spaces, that we talk about what it actually means to be in a place of diversity, what it means to treat people who may not look like you with respect, what it means to understand the history of the place that you're in and to understand like your, the, your role in the history around you. And there are certain things that you just don't do. There are certain things that you just don't say. And when people when people say or do the wrong thing, then there needs to be a response and there needs to be a re immediate response to remind people that this is unacceptable behavior and we want you to do like, here's what you can do to do better. Um, I thought about that with the with the blackface incident and I think about there were so many students involved in that who should have known better. You would think that they wouldn't know better, but they probably didn't. So what kind of conversations do we need to have on campus about the history of blackface? What kind of conversations do we need to have around how diverse and how inclusive is the Auburn campus? Because I've heard like recently our our black enrollment is nowhere near where it needs to be in a state where at least a quarter of the uh, of the population is black. And, you know, and that's only when the football team is in town, when the football to win this at away game, it even goes down further. So there are much larger questions that need to take place. And we need to really think about what does it mean to actually have an inclusive campus where people not only are allowed to be on campus, but you're actually welcomed and you're you're able to be a full participant in whatever the campus life is. Um, so I've thought about that going back to. Uh, the Emmett Till uh, sign and people vandalizing the sign. I think one of the things that's bothered me more than anything else about this current era that we're in right now, this Trumpism era, is that people who usually would know better than to say something or do something in public now feel like they're they have a little bit more license to say things, to do things, to put out that Confederate flag in front of their house to use offensive language, to make offensive gestures, to do things like vandalism to a historical marker. I, I feel like there's more of that happening now because we have a president who makes it seem like it's okay. So I wonder over the next couple of years what choice we're going to make when the question is, what kind of country do we want to be? Uh, do we want to be a multicultural place where everyone is welcome, everyone is affirmed, everyone can be a full participant in our society? Or are we going to try to go back to the era of white supremacy where, you know, white folks are in charge of everything and we will, and people of color, even women, are, can only get as high as we'll allow them to get? I feel like there are some people who want to take us back there. And that's just unacceptable. We need to be moving towards being a more open, more multicultural place. We need to have a multicultural democracy here. And I think that's what we need to move towards. And I think we'll be a stronger country if we do that.
So that's what concerns me right now. Like over the next couple of years, this country is going to have to make a decision about which direction we're going to go in. And somewhat unrelated, but maybe not, how how have you seen the state the last few days talking and thinking about the ICE raids? I mean, I know the education system, because there are children now left. How is that being affected? Why, why do you think of all places ICE came to Jackson to do such a big raid and, you know, act of aggression on people's lives? How does this fit into the picture? I'm not entirely sure why Mississippi was selected. Um, What I will say is that, and it's been interesting over the past couple of days to just read up on the 30 year history of, you know, how we got to this place where there were so many immigrants who were living in communities working in these particular jobs. And from my understanding, you know, uh, the vast majority of these jobs were filled by black workers. But when black workers were trying to organize and fight for better pay and better working conditions, these companies were faced with a choice. We're either going to change our operation and provide better pay and provide better working conditions, or we're going to find a new group to exploit. And obviously, the decision was we're going to find a new group to exploit. (laughs) So we're going to bring in immigrants and we're going to pay them uh, we're not going to pay them well. Uh, we are, if when we do provide good wages, we are going to add additional fees. They're gonna, they're gonna have to pay for certain services that are gonna bring those wages down. When you look at, you know, the the grand total, and they're not gonna be able to complain because they're here as undocumented workers, and we're gonna have, to, and you know, we get them deported. So we found a new group to exploit. And now that these ice raids have taken place again, I think we're back where we started, where we're gonna have to make a choice again. Are we going to improve wages, improve working conditions, make these jobs the kind of jobs that folks will want to do? Or are folks gonna try to just find a new group to exploit? And I think that goes back to what I said earlier about people really getting engaged, because this is something where elected officials are going to get to weigh in. Like, they're going to have to decide how do we hold these businesses accountable? What can di- like, what policies are we going to have to put in place that may help to, may lead to better working conditions? So I'm curious to see what our gubernatorial candidates are going to say about this. I'm interested to see what our lieutenant gubernatorial candidates are going to say. What are our legislative candidates going to say about this? Like, which direction are we going to go in again are we going to make these jobs better and improve conditions or are we going to find a new group to exploit what's next for you where can people find out what you because you are very clever online. You're also clever in person. Thank you so much. <laughs> but I know that you have been following the 2020 election. Yes. Um, already very closely. So what's next for you and where can people see your work? So I am very interested in this uh, presidential election. Um, 
I am excited about whoever the Democratic candidate is going to be. I'm just going to put that out there because I'm not a big fan of Trump. <laughs> so I'm, I think that puts you in line with 100% of our listeners. Fantastic. Yeah, I think the dude is trash. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I don't so, know if we have any. I mean, I'm sure at some point someone who is uh, pro-Trump maybe happens onto the podcast but I don't think they stick around long and that's good you're free to yeah. listen to whatever you want to listen to fantastic so there are so many candidates and I had a feeling because Trump is so unpopular and that this was seen as the opportunity for a Democrat to win that everybody and their mama was going to run and that's exactly what happened so i ended up on facebook making this joke about creating this big barbecue at my house this big cookout and inviting people in and where would they sit so there would be folks who would be sitting at the big table like that's the usually where your grandma and your parents sit and then you have the other table where the younger adults and maybe the teenagers would sit um, so we had those two tables. We had a governor's card table for all the gubernatorial candidates. We had people sitting like in the family room of the house, you know, eating on paper plates, um, not hamburger helper, but pan burger partners. So like like the budget stuff, um, we created a Seth room, uh, which is for it. It stood for Seth Moulton, Eric Swalwell. Tim Ryan. There was nobody that whose name started with an H, but we just went with Seth Room. Uh, we put some people on the back porch. We had people sitting in the laundry room. So we just anyone who has a big family. My mom's family is huge, and I know this of like, <laughs> you know, the table. We're we're gonna have to put the table in the hallway. Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. Yes. Or like, are we yes. gonna set up a table in the back porch? And you have to, yeah. You think about where all the tables go. This is where everybody sits. Like some people are gonna have to be on their knees eating at the coffee table. Some people are gonna have to sit on the piano bench. Uh, some people are gonna have to sit on a stack of magazines. Everybody's gonna get fed. Like you may not get the best food. Like depending on who you are. Like well, you also have to know your order in line. You do have to know your order in line, and there are there are strict rules and there are consequences for if you break those rules. <laughs> so, yes. um, so those comments, and I ended up doing a Facebook post for every single person that came in. So under the hashtag Shoot Your Shot 2020, because I felt like so many candidates, you know, for whatever reason, they're deciding to jump in. So I'm like, okay, shoot your shot, give it a shot, you know, just. Try it out. Yeah. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. Yeah, we're, we're at a point now. There have been well over 20 candidates. It's time for us to get serious. So we need to cut this group in half, at least in half. So uh, the new analogy now is that we've set up uh, sandwich bags to go sandwiches for people. So it's time for some folks to grab the sandwich. Um, Eric Swalwell, I give him a lot of credit. He looked around. He realized I'm not going to win this. So I'm going to grab my sandwich. And I think there's some other people who are probably going to make that same decision. I love that there are these uh, these requirements in order to make it to the next round. And I think there are some people who are going to look and see, you know what? Uh, this is not my time. Not. It's not. And it's okay. You're like, you gave it a shot. Some people are making the requirements and they still don't realize it's maybe no longer their time. Some folks. I don't want to say any. I mean, I will vote for any one of those 20 people. Um, maybe I should have more critical faculty, but anyone, I will vote for anyone. Yeah. But there are some people that could use a bit of self-awareness. Mm. 
about what's happening mm. here. So I did create a flow chart. Okay. To help people. So I'm hoping that people will use that as an opportunity to reflect and just think about are there other opportunities? I think there's some people who are sitting at the table right now who should probably be running for Senate. So maybe use this as an opportunity. Yeah, run for Senate. We need senators. There was a stack of of brochures about running for Senate that we put on the governor's car table next to the to-go sandwiches. So um, we're hoping that somebody will grab a sandwich, pick up a uh, brochure for Senate, and then go back home and run for Senate. Senate Senate sandwiches. Senate. Like, have you heard about this Senate? Senate is great. It's awesome. The (laughs) Senate is great. It is so awesome. And we need the Senate. Because even if we have a good president, like if Mitch McConnell is still there, then there's not going to be a lot of progress that's made. So, and, you know, he actually knows what he's doing. So It's horrifying, but yes. The man is very, very effective at what he does. and To have not have a skeleton, he's remarkably sentient. He looks like he's molded out of Play-Doh. <laughs> so with the Shoot Your Shot 2020... You've also started a blog that people can follow along as you are, I guess, you're like the color commentator for this game. Yes, yes. Uh, so notes from the cookout. So most of it is going to be around the uh, primary election. Um, I try to post maybe twice a week. Um, I'll talk about a little state politics. I will probably include some information about Auburn because um, the football season is coming up. and. I'm the kind of fan that really treats the Auburn Tigers like a child. Um, I I get really happy when they do well, and when they don't do well, I just really get disappointed. Thank you for listening this week, and thank you to Sanford Johnson for joining us for the last two episodes. We had a wonderful time in the Delta with Sanford and his family and his community. If you want to hear Sanford and I talk Auburn football, head over to AboutSouthPodcast.com and go to the Learn tab. And there you can see a short preview of um, the accidental Sanford and Kaysen Auburn football hour that we recorded while we were honestly trying to talk about these other things. But this time of year, all roads lead back to Auburn. About South is brought to you from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. Kelly Vines and Ajua Danso are my co-producers, and Jessica Parker is an assistant producer. Our music is by Brian Horton. You can find more at brianhorton.com. You can find us at aboutsouthpodcast.com, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're so inclined, you can help us out by becoming a patron on our Patreon page, or offering your support on our website. Next week, we're joined by the one and only Brigitte Bidet. We talk to her about the long-standing drag scene in Atlanta and how it's influenced not just the city, but the entire world. It is an episode you don't want to miss. Until then, take care.
I was just thinking as you were saying that I was flashing back to, I remember taking con law with Dr. Stephen Brown, and I think it was over the summer, we took one of his con law classes together, Yes. and we were talking about um, the North Carolina district that's gerrymandered down Interstate 85, and I remember you raising your hand in class and you said, I'm just slightly confused because if this district was to ensure one black representative, I was under the impression there are way more black people in North Carolina than than this. <laughs> and that they don't just all live like one mile off of 85, right? Because of the way yeah. that district goes. And so I'm having this memory. One, okay, so we should definitely send this episode to Dr. Brown. Yes. So he knows, not only did we do our homework, we're still doing our homework. Still learning. Did you get a shirt? That's the question. No. We got shirts. He made shirts. When did he make shirts? He made shirts back in... When this was, was this after like, I graduated. Yeah, it was after you graduated. But I, I have a shirt somewhere that's got uh, all four con law classes. And it's got the cases that we studied. And um, yeah, I have a shirt. You, Man. you need to get a shirt. You know, I think it's because I was a poli-sci minor. I think I only took three con law classes. Oh, you had to take all four to get the shirt. That's what it was. Do you think that Dr. Brown would make an exception? I think with the way we're name dropping him right now, I think he may be able to get you a shirt. Okay. I'm going to look into it. Dr. Brown. I know. Please. Please get her a shirt. Please. Thanks. She's smiling right now. She needs a shirt. And he knows I've been a, I, I, I was like an active student. Love class. those classes. God, they were so good. I was trying to think about some of the cases that we uh, had for moot court. I remember mix. the pull tab gambling case yes. for native gaming in yes. Oklahoma. I, I was uh, I was a justice for that one. I was too. I was Justice Breyer. I think I was Suter. And then the one we had during the summer class, I got to be Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which is obviously who I'm supposed to be. Yes. Yes. And I wore my yes. glasses and my hair pulled back. And I, I do remember like, that. I remember Dr. Brown was like, you've really kind of gone all out on this one. Now, there was one where it was around the death penalty. And I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to remember what the name of the case was. It might have been based in Cleveland. Or was it Virginia? Was it Atkinsville, Virginia? That sounds familiar. That might be it. But I was a, I was. I was ruling, I was on the side that was saying we should not be executing someone who, uh, someone who has special needs. And uh, that's where my... Oh, I do remember this case. Yes. Yeah. There, so there was a line that I was supposed to fit in there. Um, because one of the arguments that the other side was making is that he is not, um, he does not, he's not mentally challenged because he can make his own food. Like he can make chicken. And I'm so remembering that. Yes, and I and I think I ended up saying, I mean, yeah, he can make chicken, but it wasn't like, you know, the Colonel's eleven original spices or stuff like that. And I was supposed to have a rhyme that said he may have had criminal vices, but he doesn't know the Colonel's herbs and spices. And I was That's so, very Johnny Conrad 1990s. Yes, yes, and I was supposed <laughs> to do it, and I chickened out. I parked out and didn't. Oh, do you it. chickened out. I chickened out. <laughs> oh wow yes you see how we just walked into the 